0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for, well, another hour or so or two or whatever this is going to be of podcasting greatness where all good podcasts are sold. Hey, everybody, thanks for tuning in and listening to what I have to say this week. We are going to talk about some Scientology-related stuff this week. But I have some—this podcast is actually all about the union or joining in, in, you know that, that constantly goes on in my mind, and I constantly try to communicate to you guys about how the lessons of Scientology or how the things we can learn from cults and destructive groups and high control groups um, and narcissists and stuff like that how does that translate into real world lessons? How do we use this knowledge? How do we use this information, the, these valuable lessons from the trauma and abuse and nonsense that people have to go through in order to teach the rest of us, you know, or that I had to go through to teach you know, other people, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this to each other. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. Maybe there are better ways of getting along. Maybe there are better ways of getting jobs done. Maybe there's better ways of building houses. Maybe there's better ways of making food, raising kids, educating kids. Doing the work that gets done in this world needs to get done. And we need people to do it. But we also need people to do it in such a way that they're not hurting other people in the process. And it's unfortunate but true that there are many, many industries and and areas of pursuit in this world where people are get a pass for being complete jerks, complete, abusive, narcissistic assholes. And they get a pass. And I'm going to talk a little bit here this show about that. In fact, I want to intro this with a little, I don't, I don't know, a little example, I guess, uh, that's kind of brewing in my mind right now. Because I'm doing a master's program, which is a postgraduate very difficult study program through the University of Salford. And I'm having a difficult time with it. It is not easy um, at all. And I am constantly being reminded of things from my past. Uh, and and this is voluntary. This is not nobody's forcing me to do this. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here totally complaining. <laughs> but but I believe that there is something wrong with the system of education on a systemic level, not an individual level. There is no one person I have a beef with about this. There's no individual making my life a terrible, horrible thing through education. It's not like that. But I do observe that there is a systemic problem when you are in a higher education situation and the pressure that you can either put on yourself or that can be put on you externally, or the feeling of the pressure and then you know, the demand to do it right, to get it right, to learn it right, to be able to critically think about it. This is not just two plus two equals four and some simple memorization as it goes on in regular schooling. This is higher education where you really need to bring your intellect into the picture and, and it's difficult, you know, it is very, very difficult. And I know a lot of you out there right now might be listening to this or watching me right now and nodding in agreement from your own experience with it. While some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, but that's just the way it's supposed to be. That's how it's, you know, it's supposed to be grueling. It's supposed to be hard. But is it supposed to be so hard that you think constantly about dropping out? Is it supposed to be so hard that you think constantly that you are an imposter, that you don't belong, that nothing you're doing is right and everything you're doing is definitely wrong? Because I don't call that learning. I think that's something else. And I think far too many of us have survived an experience like that at university and have come out the other end, shaking it off, shaking our head out and going, I don't know what the hell just happened to me but I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Thank God it's over. And I got the degree or whatever, right? And you move on and you don't think about it too much anymore because it's not in your life anymore. And yet everybody else who's following along after you has to go through the same process. And we all just sort of go, well, that's the process. What are you going to do? Nothing you can do. Again, it's not a matter of one individual making your life difficult or even a group of people. It's an entire system that we all just plug into. And I just find the whole thing pretty fascinating and worthy of comment. And the reason that I find it worthy of comment as an introduction to the podcast today is because an article came across my plate. And if I feel or come across a little disorganized today, it's because this was rather hastily put together as an idea I had just this morning for a podcast. I. I had a whole different podcast put together for this week that we'll do probably next week uh, covering some Scientology basic material that I thought some of you guys might be interested in hearing about, kind of some kind of deep theory, kind of philosophy level Scientology. So um, so I thought, you know, I've never talked about that stuff because I didn't think it was particularly actually going to have broad interest or appeal, but, um, but then I changed my mind and so I was going to put that show together and then this news article hit. And this is a news article that uh, is about the about Hollywood, the entertainment industry, Me Too, the uh, abuse that occurs in that industry. And like the educational system that I was just describing and that I am living through right now, we also have the entertainment industry where it is known, it is understood. I'm using air quotes here. It is um, it just agreed upon by the industry at large that there are are no easy ways into the industry and that you have to pay your dues, you know, uh, put in your time, work your ass off, do all the things that are completely whack, endure physical, psychological, emotional stress, and trauma, and abuse, verbal, psychological, even physical, and just put up with it because that's the way the industry runs, And this is just how it is. This is just how it works. And you just better go along with it if you ever want to get ahead. Sound familiar? Right? We all know about this. We all heard something about this. The Me Too movement was all about exposing one aspect of this. But the fact of the matter is that while there is a huge problem with um, abuse and uh, sexual abuse, of course, of women in this industry and industry across the the spectrum. No debate about that. There is a non-gendered issue here too, which is just the general agreement that it needs to be an abusive environment in order to create, in order to somehow uh, feed creativity, in order to somehow make the, make the weed out the weak and keep them away and only the strong survive in this kind of jungle mentality. This is not civilized. This isn't humane. This isn't how work should be. Um, and it struck me when this article hit, and it, and there were two articles actually, and I've linked them in the show notes today. They are one from The Hollywood Reporter and the other from Vulture.com, and Um, These are about a producer, a very famous, very well-known and well-awarded producer. His name is Scott Rudin, and he is one of, I believe there are 14 or 16 people who has won like ever in all of history. This is one of the like 14 or 16 guys who's won a Tony, Emmy, Grammy, and Oscar, all combined right? He's done all of those as a producer. He's not an on-screen talent. He's behind the screen. He makes the movies happen. He facilitates them occurring by raising money, organizing things, producing. That's what they do. So this guy has produced some of your favorite movies. This guy has produced a legion of well-known, well-thought-of, critically acclaimed, Oscar-winning, star-producing movies. This guy has a track record that is impressive. He's also a first-class asshole. And not just he has a few temper tantrums or swears at people, or he's a little finicky. This guy is at the level of David Miscavige. And I couldn't help but actually my eyes almost bulged out of my head when I was reading the articles, which I'm going to quote to you quite extensively today, I'm going to quote from these, I've I've made a whole list of notes from these articles that I want to go over with you because they line up almost word for word with the crap that comes out of Miscavige's mouth and the same crap he does to people in his inner circle in the Sea Org, the abuse that he rains down upon the entire Sea Org the things he says, the way he acts, the, the exact control mechanisms that he uses. And we've gone over this. I've, I, I've interviewed people who have been at the direct uh, brunt, you know, uh, hand of uh, or feet of Miscavige. I've had Jefferson Hawkins, Mark Headley, et cetera, on my show talking about this kind of physical abuse that occurs. And here we have a Hollywood producer with a, a, an extensive... Pedigree of 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 production, who is a first class tyrant, and we have to address the. I have to address today the similarities between these two figures because they were striking. I have gone so. I've said so many times. I've I've, I've tried to make the point over and over and over again that. The lessons we can learn from destructive cults, what we see in destructive cult leaders, what we see in these narcissists, these malignant, high-control freak people, is something we see in the world at large. It's not just in these crazy guru groups with wacky beliefs. It's right in the middle of Hollywood. It's right in the middle of uh, of the stock exchange, of, of Wall Street. It's right in the middle of the education system, I think, if we care to look. It's, it's all around us and we have to become better at spotting it and calling it out because we now live in an environment where people are sick and tired of putting up with this crap. And I think, I think, I'd like to think that a lot of the exposure that's been done of cults over all these years that I've had, that I've been fortunate enough to and lucky enough to be able to contribute to has made a difference in this. I think it has raised awareness. I think we all do know a little bit more about this. Now, unfortunately, though, not all of us. All of us, the people who are listening to the show right now, of course, you guys guys get it. But what about everybody else? What about the people who, you know, what about the kids who, who go into this stuff? Because like Scientology... Rudin, this producer, recruits young, vulnerable people looking for a job, right, trying to come up in the industry, just graduated NYU, they want to get in the film industry, they go out to Hollywood, ooh, I can work for Scott Rudin, wow. Well, this guy burns through people, 119 assistants in five years. I mean, are you kidding me? This was, and that was detailed back in 2005, By the Wall Street Journal, who did an article on this guy way back then, and they called him Bosszilla, and it was a big joke. (laughs) Uh, His own estimation in that article, he had burned through 119 assistants over five years, or as one former assistant describes it, quote, an absurd revolving door of disposable, interchangeable, bright young people whose purpose is to be the target an outlet for his anger. The press and the industry this is another quote from the article. This is both coming out of the Hollywood Reporter article and the Vulture article. I've got quotes interspersed here throughout from both of them. The press and the industry itself has often presented Scott's abusive behavior, throwing computers, insults, and tantrums at his assistants as the idiosyncratic byproduct of an eccentric man. Even after The Hollywood Reporter published a piece earlier this month going into greater detail, Hollywood and Broadway largely remained silent. Because also, by the way, Bruden is not just a movie producer. He is also a a Broadway musical producer. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Um. Now, what I did was I kind of went through these articles, and they're they're both very well-written articles, and I really do highly recommend that you read them all the way through. Um, the Vulture article is particularly good because it actually breaks it down by subject and area or sort of subject matter, and, um, and it's quite a well-organized piece. And so I sort of did my own breakdown of this, though, against the characteristics that we see or some of the— um, uh, actions that this kind of, see what I'm looking at here is a kind of personality. I'm looking at this abuser personality, this this tyrant personality. And there are characteristics, there are patterns to this. And this is why we talk about coercive control as a routine as a repeating pattern of behavior. This is really, really crucial. Anybody can have a bad day and have a bad moment and go off. But what we do, what we've tended to do in the past, not knowing about these repeating patterns of behavior, is we tend to negate the one-off. We go, oh, it's a bad day, whatever, like like I just did. But then it happens again. And we go, oh, it's just a uh, fill in the blank, right? And then another one happens and another one happens. like These things keep happening. And we going in our day-to-day, not paying attention to the bigger pictures, our usual course of events. And because we've got lots of other things on our mind, we just dream up reasons why it's kind of okay. But this is like the frog in the boiling water. You're really just coming up with reasons why it's okay that the water's getting hotter and hotter and hotter until eventually you're like, oh my God, and it's too late. And now you're in it. And now you're burning to death. And that's the, those are my mixed metaphors for this. But this um, so, so the articles break down some characteristics of these guys, and that, like I said, they are direct, directly the same. Miscavige and the Sea Org, and how the Sea Org executives operate, as trained by L. Ron Hubbard, and as and, and when watching the example of David Miscavige, Sea Org executives act like Scott Rudin does. And Scott Rudin next, like David Miscavige does because they're both the same kind of personality, a craven, narcissistic, just ego-filled baby. And they have man tantrums all the time. And, you know, I say man tantrums as though it's gender-specific, but, you know, there are women who fill these roles too. But unfortunately and weirdly, um, it is mostly men who seem to fill these roles, Uh, okay, for example, now, now let's take a look at some, uh, intent first. I mean, we have here lives to break people. I mean, imagine having this one of the goals of your life or some, one of the things you enjoy doing, you really get off on is breaking people, seeing how far you can push them and then pushing them harder on purpose, just to watch them suffer. There are people who like that. Scott Rudin apparently is one of them. David Miscavige is another. Quote, the office attracts a cold-blooded young exec type who thinks he'll treat me differently. I know exactly how to make this culture work for me. Everyone is proven wrong eventually. Rudin lives to break people with very few exceptions. And that was a quote from an intern assistant from t- who worked for him from uh, 2015 to 16. Uh, now, this was an interesting parallel with the Sea Org that I uh, absolutely needed to, need to bring up because it's, it's key to how you get people into a state of mind where it is so much easier to control them for periods of time. And that is sleep deprivation, food deprivation, schedule deprivation. Basically, you control the schedule, you control their movement, you control their actions. And you do it for extended periods of time, way longer than what is normal. And that messes with people. It messes with people at a biological level. So here we have Rudin as an example. The schedule was grueling. Quote, every day, you're getting in at 6 a.m., You're probably working until 8, 9, 10 at night. On the weekends, the assistants all take turns being on call for Scott. So you're probably working at least one weekend a month, one assistant said. Even if you aren't working in the office, you are probably still doing a lot of work from home to catch up on the sheer volume of what was expected of you. Despite the scope of Scott Rudin Productions, it was a tiny operation, Quote, I was shocked by how small the office was. I was picturing a 30 or 40 person office, an assistant said. There was a moment where it clicked. Well, that's why they're all working 14, 16 hour days, because they have an entire production company's worth of work to do, and it's 10 people. Now, interestingly, this is paid work. This is a job. This is thing, this is not a cult. But if we look at why would it be this way? What is this about? Well, it's about frugality of finances, I suppose. But let's look at this man and who he is and what he's all about. If this is a person who's, who, who gets off on breaking people, then this is somebody who's going to want to create an environment where everybody is frantically on a hamster wheel and freaking out and kept on a razor's edge of anxiety. That's where you want people, if you want to control them, like, in, on this, like, border of, of just breaking their sanity. That's David Miscavige to a T, is it not? Why do you think the Sea Org is run the way it is? Why the tight scheduling, the gruesome scheduling, the long hours, the bad food, the bad sleep, the crap medicine, the crap attention to medicine, to education in the Sea Org. Why all that? Same reasons, exact same reasons, because that's the best environment to make if you want to run people ragged and laugh at their antics while you're doing it or rail against their antics because that's what gets you off. It's really pretty sick, isn't it? Now, we have uh, blatant disregard for any humanity, right? Treating employees like dirt. Quote, there's a girl who worked for him, and she passed out in the conference room in front of him, I think from pure exhaustion. He stepped over her, turned to an assistant, and said, I'm going to go out, and I want her gone by the time I get back here. The other one is the dishes. This one's pretty famous. Supposedly, he got off a call with a reporter about a story or review he didn't like, and he goes into the kitchen. He takes all the dishes out and he starts slamming them on the floor. He breaks every dish in the kitchen. Then he silently walks out of the office and leaves. And that was a quote from a documents assistant from 2017 who worked for Rudin. All right. Now, in terms of direct comparisons, as I was talking about, that besides, you know, the more generalized behavior and there is more of that that we're going to cover. But here's the first of direct parallels between some of what goes on in the C organ at the upper levels and what what was going on in Rudin's office. So Scott Rudin, apparently a unique phenomena of his company that several sources detailed was something called soft Firings, soft firings. An ousted employee would wait in the Starbucks in the lobby for Rudin to cool off after he had fired them and allow the groveling underling to return. So it wasn't really fired. You're fired, but then he comes back, begs for his job, and Rudin blesses him and gives it back to him. Quote, I had been soft fired four or five times before it stuck. He snaps at you and says something like, you're done. You're finished. I don't ever want to see you again. And the expectation is you go home or you wait at the Starbucks downstairs and either an assistant will flag you back in later that day or the next morning you'll come in as though nothing has happened. The soft, I got soft fired because I had to make him a DVD of clips of actors for the Broadway production of The Crucible. He was mad that the volumes were at different levels based on the initial sources. He was upset he would have to use this remote to turn up and down the volume accordingly. And that's a quote from junior creative executive from 2012 to 2014 who worked for Rudin. So soft firings. This is exactly how David Miscavige does declare orders at the highest levels of Scientology, is he will conditionally declare suppressive all the people, his underlings, and I believe we've heard from people who have left that area, many, many different people, that all of them are, are conditionally declared or they're declared, but he's not publishing it. And this in the Sea Org is basically the equivalent of a soft firing because when Rudin fires somebody, they're gone. They're not in his life anymore. They're not in his company anymore. He doesn't have to pay them anymore. And they're, and that's it. They're done. The Relationship is severed. There is no expectation that there's going to be any continuing relationship. Scientology, you get declared suppressive. That's it. Shun, disconnect. You're out. You're expelled. No further connection or relationship. But the point of the, of the conditional suppressive person declare, there is no such thing. L. Ron Hubbard never wrote a single word about conditionally declaring somebody as suppressive. That is a miscavige invention, at least as far as I know it is. And this is something that Miscavige has used to tightly control all of the people, the Scientologists under him for years he's been doing this, decades. So, uh, again, same, same parallel there. Um, okay, abusing the vulnerable. Nowhere is that more evident than at Scott Rudin Productions, where a conveyor belt of assistance, typically recent New York university grads who were hungry, vulnerable, and willing to put up with maltreatment. Quote, that was a big, big moment, said another staffer of the mistreatment of his colleague. It literally changed everyone who was there at the time's interest in having anything to do with him ever again. All the employees realized that this is what we had to look forward to after slaving away, being attacked so much, being maligned in really bizarre ways. There was a casual disregard for human rights. At an office, at a place where you're going to go work, a casual disregard for human rights. Um, Per a knowledgeable legal source, bullying claims against Rudin never see the light of day and are settled quietly. Fear of reprisals has kept many from speaking out. Employees typically sign a non-disparagement agreement. Sound familiar? Of course, this is used all through Hollywood to keep the abuse quiet. And in destructive cults and companies, unfortunately, across America are now buying into this. And several sources for this piece consulted with an attorney before proceeding even off the record. Why? Well, here's the next trait, vindictiveness. Vindictiveness. Quote, when they ultimately quit, which they always do at some point, he vindictively goes on IMDb and takes away any credits they may have amassed while working for him, says one producer who hired a traumatized assistant following a Rudin stunt and saw the practice play out. All right. Now, one of the other things that we have heard about over the years here and there are some of the idiosyncrasies and weird things and very hyper-specific demands that these kinds of personalities make on the people around them. They are in a position of power where their demands actually do need to be met in the little domain or fiefdom that they have created under them. And if you go into that environment, you quickly learn that you are expected to comply with the orders and directions of these personalities to the letter, or there will be consequences, and those consequences are going to be extreme. Rudin, interestingly, has a whole series of them, and some of them are quite hyper-specific and strikingly similar to some of the things we hear about at the Int base or from David Miscavige's entourage or ex-entourage of people. According to five assistants and interns who worked for Scott Rudin from 2001 to 2017, here are uh, some of the arbitrary and ridiculous rules with catastrophic punishments. One, the first thing you're told when you walk in the door, don't look him in the eye. Because if he's in a bad mood and he's looking for somebody to yell at, he might pick you. Two, never talk to Scott. Your boss. Three, if you were in the kitchen or storage space area, whether you were photocopying a script, washing the dishes, or restocking the fridge, if Scott came in, you were to try to exit immediately. Don't go into the storage closet if he's in the office, because if he sees inside the closet, it could be dangerous for you. You have to make sure the door is always closed when you're in it. It was disorganized, and the thinking was. He would be so upset by the disorganization, something bad would happen. What would that be? I don't know. Uh, five. His phone cord is nine feet long. If you're in his office, make sure you are 10 feet away because then the phone won't hit you when he throws it at you. Six. Don't get up to pee or eat in front of him. Seven. Seven. He has an enormous closet of snacks, giant Tupperware of M&M's, Oreos, Cheerios. Don't eat snacks when he notices things are low in the kitchen. Eight, you're not allowed to take the subway because you can't lose cell reception at any point while you're working for him. I would have to take these long Ubers, admittedly paid for by the company was the quote there. So I just have to comment on the snacks point because on Sea Org bases, the uh, highest ranking and highest level Sea Org members are the people who work at RTC, the Religious Technology Center, which is David Miscavige's organization. And he has representatives, little capos, at each Sea Org base. And they are the enforcers for his directions right on the ground, and they run all kinds of programs and demands on all the Sea Org members and public Scientologists on the base. And RTC's word is law. It doesn't matter what L. Ron Hubbard wrote. If an RTC rep is telling you to do something representative, an RTC representative is telling you an order, you are going to comply with it. And if you do not, there will be consequences. You learn that very quickly. It is it is same, same. So when I worked at the pack base, one of the things that the RTC reps, one of the privileges of that job was that they got snacks whenever the hell they wanted out of the galley, and it was whatever they wanted. And so we would see cheese and meat plates and sweets and cookies and fun stuff and, of course, vegetable dishes and whatever the hell, hell else they wanted taken to them at all hours of the day or night. Uh, prepared by the galley, direct line. If the RTC rep wanted some food, they would either call the galley directly or call some messenger who would call the galley and order the food to be made immediately. No other Sea Org member on the base besides RTC and the, the head of the Commodore's Messenger Org, which is another high level, but it's below RTC. It's another high level organization within the command structure of Scientology. Those were the only two people on the Sea Org base who could order the galley around arbitrarily to get whatever food they wanted whenever they wanted. So uh, rice and beans, not for them, right? That was the power disparity that we had uh, because of the various privileges of station in the Sea Org. And I just couldn't help but think about that immediately while I was reading about Rudin's uh, giant Tupperwares of M&Ms because... There was literally a separate area kept in the galley storage for the RTC food. It was a special and unique and different thing. Uh, Okay. And of course, uh, if you haven't connected those dots, RTC was the source of all the abuse and trauma in the Sea Org. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I shouldn't necessarily say all of the abuse and trauma because, of course, Hubbard's auditing procedures are themselves traumatizing and abusive. Uh, But from the day-to-day workload that we would get and the kind of punishments that would be doled out, that was RTC. Uh, Let me give you a couple other examples here of some hyper-specific things that were rules according to four assistants who worked for Scott from this early 2000s to 2017. Now, this was in movie and theater production. So, for example, one, one of the rules was, one, a cast list, and all the people on the show, a cast list must be in alphabetical order by first name, not last name. Two, a photocopy uh, must be perfectly centered. Any photocopy anywhere, anytime has to be perfectly centered. Any document must be in Garamond font size 12. Nothing else. Every night he would get a uh, black Jansport backpack delivered to him that would have materials he needed to read and invariably he would not bring them back. So there was a constant rotation of black Jansport backpacks at the ready for him. He did not like emailing or texting on the iPhone keyboard. There was a closet full. Okay, this is hilarious. He actually had a closet of old BlackBerry phones with the little keyboards on them. And he kept smashing them and breaking them when he would have his baby man fits. And they had a whole closet full of these old things to keep him into in his phones. Uh, this was interesting and more demonstrative of the kind of thing that we see in these personalities. I had put a little sign here sticker. Okay. So I put a little, this was a quote from one of his uh, assistants. I had put a little sign here sticker with an arrow right above a line where he needed to sign. He was going through a big legal situation. He was frustrated because he felt it should have been on the line instead of above it. He worked himself into a tizzy. He tried to pick up the chair he'd been sitting in to throw it at me. He did not succeed in doing that. He ended up just shoving the chair at me. And then there is, um oh yes, then there was the matter of the hole punch scripts. They had to have these little brads. You had to hammer them. They had to be labeled. And if there was a mistake, it would never slip by him. And he was always... Telling people that they had to get these things lined up in these crates and the crates were too small for them. And this was uh, sort of what it, what it felt to work there having to curate as many documents as possible and then being told he needs all of it in a really small box. Okay, now in terms of some of the things that we talk about, I translated some bits out of the article to some of the psychological terms and mechanisms that we talk about on this show when we get into a little bit more detail about maybe some of the psychological coercive control elements. Uh, The article talks about how Rudin, Scott Rudin, is charming but unpredictable, which really sort of translates to the man engages in trauma bonding and learned helplessness. Uh, One former Rudin assistant says the producer relished in the cruelty, but was able to pivot from berating staff to turning on the charm as soon as talent walked in the door. Quote, a hallmark of an abusive dynamic is not just that the perpetrator overtly mistreats you. It is also the ways in which they flatter And cajole you to let your guard down to believe, oh, maybe this time things are different. Or the next time you actually have to do something for him, you are going to do it in a way to try and gain that validation again. It's dangling the tiniest carrot in front of you so you don't complain when he's hitting you with the bigger stick. And that's a quote from Evan Davis, who was an assistant from 2012 to 2013, and a very accurate observation and description of what trauma-based or trauma bonding is and and where where this goes is in the direction of learned helplessness, because you quickly find out you'll never be able to predict accurately whether you're going to be on the good or the bad side. And the good is pretty good sometimes, but it's few and far between. And it seems over time that the moments of good and validation and rewards become less and less frequent with more and more time in between those episodes where the episodes of straight up abuse and anger and, and, and ire and frustration and soft firings become more and more frequent over time. And there's sort of this inverse ratio, and this creates the psychological condition we call trauma bonding, where you really, it, it be, it's a it's an association problem, sorry, an attachment problem, not association, it's an attachment problem. And uh, this messes with people's heads in very significant ways. Okay, so it is a hallmark of an abusive dynamic, as this person says. Evan definitely went and, uh, and got some education on this. Um, Now, another factor here is that these kind of personalities can make you question reality itself. And this, of course, is gaslighting and what we have gone over on the show of double binds where you're Mm -hmm. stuck in Mm catch-22 rules and regulations that you are no-win scenarios for you. You can't do this. But you also can't do this, and it binds you, it locks you in to no choice works, no choice is right. You're wrong no matter what you do. And we've all been in those situations. They are created situations, and they are very, very difficult to see your way out of when you're in the middle of one. And they can be crazy-making. The whole concept of double binds came from the study of, of schizophrenia and attempts to try to figure out and solve the causes of schizophrenia. So this is this is uh, really deep work. This is very important stuff and very basic to our sanity, our rationality. So these kind of personalities like to, they they really take a great deal of pride, it seems, in messing with your perceptions and your concepts of reality. They just get off on it. They think it's fun to confuse you, twist things around, tell you that you didn't see what you think you saw or heard, et cetera. This is called gaslighting. Um, And one of his document assistants from 2019, as recently as 2019, is quoted. He is a professional at gaslighting and manipulating to the point where he's so confusing, you start to question your own reality. He talks in shorthand. And he emails in shorthand. Sometimes it doesn't make sense at all. And he will play off that. When you don't know what he's talking about, it'll send him over the edge. You see, he's always in the driver's seat. He's always in control. You're always the one who has to be berated because you're too stupid. You're too ignorant. You're too deaf, blind, dumb, etc., to be able to understand his greatness and his wonderfulness. And these personalities push this. And not only do they push it, they push it on purpose. They will look for weaknesses that you have and look for opportunities to turn events on you just to have the opportunity, to create the opportunity to mess with you. It might not even have been on their mind to do it until you came along and gave them the opportunity because you were there. And away we go, right? And this is just how these personalities think and act. It's, it, it, anyway, it's really quite something. Um, along with that is creating instances or events of humiliation, degradation, you know, demeaning you, your ego, your importance, your sense of self. Quote He had a hot seat assistant who could take Scott's shit like nobody else. He was great at his job, but Scott eventually starts looking for something about you that bothers him. For this particular assistant, it was that he ended every conversation and phone call with, got it. It didn't affect his productivity in any way, but Scott made it a problem. He made the person hang a huge sign over his desk that said, Don't say, got it. When the phrase slipped out one day, Scott began to lose it on this guy, so much so that he pulled him into the office kitchen behind a closed door. Scott normally has no problem tearing assistants a new asshole with everyone around. Then we all heard a glass shatter, and the assistant ran out and never came back. I went into the kitchen and cleaned up the pieces of a wine glass off the ground. And that was an intern and phones assistant from 2015 to 2016 who worked for Scott. Another thing that these kind of personalities will like to do is use physicality against you. They will use the moment or, or situation of you being off balance or out of your usual you know situation to make it even worse and take advantage of such situations. And um, this can make It can feel dangerous and make you freeze up is one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is that it is anxiety-inducing. And uh, the kind of heightened nerves that a person develops over time in these kind of situations, whether it's this kind of office, C-org, out in the field, whatever, if they're constantly being threatened— then you have a rising tension, rising anxiety level, and you have neurotransmitters and adrenaline and hormones going through the system that are not meant to be going through the system 24-7, you know, as much as they are having to be in this kind of warlike situation, combat kind of situation. That's the kind of tenseness, and, and that is trauma-inducing. Uh, quote, one day, I was bringing in a bunch of material for him, along with something he had been gifted from a movie studio. So I physically had a stack of things in my arm. I couldn't carry anything else. I walk in, and he goes, pen and paper, pen and paper, pen and paper, and starts repeating it, getting excessively louder. Then he goes, how are you going to remember what I want to throw out and what I want to keep if you don't have a pen and paper? But he's screaming and he starts chucking pens at my head. I literally backtracked out of the conference room. You get so afraid, your brain gets cloudy and you're operating off fear. And that's a quote from a Documents Assistant from 2017. That last bit is the important bit there. There are a million different ways, a thousand million different ways to physically intimidate somebody. But if you do it constantly and you are in a position of authority and superiority over a person, you are creating trauma in them. Sorry, but that's what's happening if you keep doing it to them. And of course, this is purposeful, this behavior, right, from these kind of personalities. Brazen insults to deride and control, repeated like a mantra. One of the assistants kept a book of things Rudin had said to insult people. One infamous line was, is your brain the size of a lentil? Another. After this, you're going to be flipping burgers at the Times Square McDonald's. You're going to be flipping burgers at the Times Square McDonald's. Where have we heard almost exactly those words before? Right out of Miscavige's mouth. Right out direct quote practically. He routinely insulted people's intelligence and skills with terms like retarded, fucking idiot, fucking clod, illiterate, sloppy menace. Once he emailed an assistant, if I were you, I'd be embarrassed to show my face in a fucking remedial kindergarten classroom. He often said, do you think what you did today would make your parents proud of you? Another recalls, when I was there, his line when he was mad at somebody was always, what is the point of you? I hear it in my head constantly. Physical violence, mostly throwing things, but also he has hit and injured employees. And of course, through such behavior, he has them all walking on eggshells. It was literally, okay, quote, it was literally like playing Operation. Remember that old game Operation. You, don't, you just don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to make it go off. As another assistant put it, what was more chilling was hearing the sound of an altercation from afar. It was being somewhere in the back of the office and hearing something crash in the front and being too scared to get up and figure out what happened. There's something visceral about being in an environment that suddenly becomes violent. Over time and talking about the experience or reading about it, it becomes abstract, almost a joke, but it's really jarring to hear a phone hit the wall or to hear something shatter and have the natural emotion to want to react or leave, but you have to act like it's normal. This paragraph hit me right between the eyes because it made me think about not only my Sea Org experience, but my Santa Barbara experience all the way back when I was a public Scientologist and there were two Sea Org members running the running the org in Santa Barbara, the Church of Scientology there, and these Sea Org members were absolutely batshit fucking nuts, especially the one in charge. Her name was Carol, and she had a temper like, like Scott Rudin's. She would yell and scream at the staff, and I was a 15-, 16-year-old public Scientologist coming on course. The course room was literally right next to her office. So she would be meeting with the staff in her office for what they called product conference every day. And going over the numbers and the statistics, and where do we stand now? And where did we stand this time last week? And is it up or down? What's going on? And, the, and, and all this, and the, and the various executives of the org would go to this meeting, and she would bitch out every single one of them. And I mean at the top of her lungs. And this quote brought all of that. I, mean, I was like, oh my God, that's exactly. What I was primed for, what all of us were, by these Sea Org members running around in the churches yelling and screaming whenever they wanted at whoever they wanted, about whatever they wanted to yell and scream about. Because Sea Org members at the church level, at the city level churches, they're VIPs. The Sea Org members are absolutely to be listened to and, and their orders are to be followed. And this was a lady who was running on a day-to-day basis. She was there to run this church. And she ran it like a little Napoleon. She was, you know, she was awful. Sorry if, you know, Napoleon fans out there. Um, I just mean she was a tyrant, you know, and she was very dictatorial. And it was fascinating to me to read this and remember my first times of being in Scientology was even pre-Sea Org, where that kind of weird normal was happening, and it was a very, very weird, jarring experience for me as a teenager. But everybody else in the room just kept their noses down and acted like nothing was happening. A couple times, a couple times when she was on her tirades, and this went on for months, years, a public person with more, way more guts than I had would call the supervisor over and be like, man, I I can't study with her yelling like that. And the supervisor would literally walk over and like, uh, uh, could we? Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Five minutes later, she's yelling at somebody else, right? She didn't give a shit. She didn't care what anybody had to say. She was the one in charge and she knew it and no one had anything else to say about it. So I've lived in this exact situation before I was even in the Sea Org, right? Much less by the, see, this is what actually kind of primed me for a lot of what happened in the Sea Org. I'd I'd kind of forgotten about some of that. So, um, okay, now this is is where things get really, really dark. When things did escalate to the point of violence, assistance described lasting effects. And this is another quote from, from these articles. Kevin Graham Queso, an executive assistant in 2008 and 2009, began seeing a therapist specifically for PTSD after his time working for Rudin. He died of suicide last year. His identical twin brother, David Graham Queso, has stated that he believes Kevin's mental health issues were at least in part owed to his time working for Rudin, which three of Kevin's friends confirmed. They cited one incident in particular in which Kevin was thrown out of Rudin's car. They'd be in communication about work, going from one location to the other, and then a little thing would piss Scott off, and he'd be like, get out. But that time was memorable because Kevin said the car was still moving when he was thrown out. Kevin was humiliated and hurt. It was devastating. Another assistant recalled what happened when his colleague forgot to deliver a message to Rudin from the head of a studio. That's not good, right? The reaction that happened afterwards, I had never seen anything like it, he said. He picks up one of those big IMAT computers. Who uh, I had a computer, an Amtel system, thrown at me on my first week there. He just ripped it out of the wall, swung it around by a cord, and flung it right at my head. This was one of those see-through Macs. And he just starts chucking them one by one across the room at the assistance. Not at a wall, at the assistants. We were all dodging them. At that point, he fired everybody. Yeah. Now, in terms of, you know, I talk about trauma, anxiety, stress, and some of you might titter. Some of you might think to yourselves that you've been through worse. What's the big deal? Why is this a problem? Why is it, you know, what's the, I've been in the army. I've been through boot camp. I've been in combat. I survived that. What's the big deal? Well, first off, I might invite you to find out a little bit more about it, but There are after effects to this. There are reasons why this is not good behavior, especially extended behavior over time. I had my first panic attack. Uh, My skin broke out constantly because of the stress, which was not a regular occurrence for me before or after. These are 15 different ways that assistants and interns who worked for Rudin from 2008 to 2020 describe the personal damage. Three, I had terrible diarrhea because my stomach was constantly in knots. Four, I struggled to eat due to nerves. I lost weight. Five, I gained weight. Six, I lost hair. Seven, I was so afraid of going to work, I would wake up every morning with hives all over my body. I would take Benadryl all day to keep the hives under control, but then I'd have to chug Red Bull to keep myself from getting drowsy. Eight, I had a bad kidney infection because I could not pee. It's the worst feeling in the world. I talked to my aunt who's a nurse practitioner and I have stress-induced bladder spasms. Now I get to go to a physical therapist and learn how to control it. Nine, I had nightmares about it for a long time and it affected my sleep. I was like, wow, I haven't slept for this whole year. Ten, I got stress-induced pancreatitis. It's funny seeing photos of us when we work there because we all had such glow-ups. Eleven, it permanently fucked my nerves. Twelve, I always said the day he makes me cry is the day I'm done because he had never made me cry and always made everyone else cry. Not that I think that I'm any stronger than the others. Everyone who works for him is strong. But the day I eventually cried, I was like, fuck, he got to me. Thirteen, we all knew Scott was a horrible guy, but we had Stockholm Syndrome. All the interns got to go to one of the dress rehearsals for West Side Story, and we're sitting in our seats, and Scott waves to us, and we all freak out. We're all like, oh my God, hey, Scott, like so excitedly waving, and you know, he didn't give a shit about any of us. We all wanted acknowledgement from him, even though he was so terrible to us. Fourteen, I quit after a bunch of soft firings and I came back two weeks later to help train my replacement. Everybody looked at me like I was a different human. They were like, the light is back in your eyes. You look like you've gained 10 pounds back on your face. It's slow in how it gets you, but once you've been there a full year, you're forever different. The environment adds up to lasting serious damage. Fifteen, the only way to succeed in it is to completely dedicate yourself to it fully, and that often means losing your ability to see the situation for what it is. You start to lose your own humanity. And if there's not a better description of the Sea or I mean, I've never heard a better description of the Sea organ, and this comes out of an office in Hollywood, and yet this is exactly the same kind of environment at all levels, by the way. You know, I'm talking about Miscavige, but I'm also talking about the Sea Org in general. Now, there's another thing that this kind of environment can do to somebody. And I thought that this was worth highlighting too, because you have the victims, but then you have another kind of victim, and that is the victim who becomes victimizer. According to multiple former employees, Eli Bush, who started as an intern and and until recently served as a top executive at SRP with producer credits on films like Lady Bird, Annihilation, and Uncut Gems, was one of the few people to quickly climb the ranks and stay there. Eli is an amazing survivalist, somebody says. Nobody does that job with that much proximity to that ruthlessness without a sense of cynicism. When Scott would leave the office, Eli was one of us. Air quotes, "One of us." And then, when Scott was back, "You're just on your own. He really fucked over a lot of assistants that were just kind of in his way. He's in this really ugly machine, and I can't really empathize with the person who stays there for that long. It's one thing if you're earning the ropes and you eventually come to understand in your mid-20s, "Oh, this is bad. I should go." It's another thing if you really make this your brand. As another former assistant put it, it's like bowling. His job is to put the pins back up so Scott can go in and knock them, knock them back down. Through a spokesman, Bush declined to comment on that article. By the way, that's the full quote from there, and I thought I would include his name just because it was included in the article. Another person, and this might remind you of someone. I've made remarks in the past about the RPF, which was the single most abusive aspect of my SeaWork experience. It was three years of hell. And um, I have said a couple times that I have had this embarrassingly perverse kind of pride in having gotten through that program and gotten out the other side. And I've always felt a little weird about that. So imagine how I felt when I read this. Quote, I'm embarrassed about the extent to which I wore this whole experience as a badge of honor for years. At parties or in classes or when I was at a meeting in LA, that was a great point of conversation. I survived Scott Rudin's office. Oh wow, what was that like? I bragged about it rather than stopping to reflect and say, no, this is awful. This is not an environment anybody should be asked to work in. And that's a quote from a person who identified as Lasky. Hit me right between the eyes when I read that. As did a lot of this article. As I'm sure you guys can see why now. (laughs) And like... Destructive cults, the entertainment industry protects itself. I knew someone who worked for Vulture a few years ago, and at the height of Me Too, they asked if I could find people willing to talk about Rudin. I never got that far because the pitch was apparently met with silence. Everyone in the entire industry, even you and I, are culpable to abuse in some way or another. And this is a quote from an intern and phone assistant who Who worked for Rudin from 2015 to 2016. Now this last bit is how the article ends and I'm going to read this to you because this is also so indicative of how these personalities act in and out of their own little fiefdoms or kingdoms because remember that these are people who rule a small roost and they rule it hard and they rule it with an iron fist and they are authoritarians But outside of their roost, they are the most wonderful, nicest, kindest, most compassionate-sounding people you could run into. It's so weird. But it's true. It's true. And here's how it plays out with Scott. And this is a quote from uh, a man who... Actually, uh, managed to avoid the whole NDA problem. I tried very hard to never become Scott. I started as an assistant in 1994 at 22. I got promoted to story editor. I was director of development at age 24, and he offered me the VP job. I had to make a choice: Do I want to keep going down this path and become Scott, or do I want to get the hell out of here? I quit and i gave 5 weeks notice on my last day i spent hours locked in his office he was trying to turn the thumb screws to get me to sign an nda and i said man i've already made my choice not to be in this world with you i am not signing an nda i was literally the last employee to leave that office without signing one he started with the whole you're an ant you're nothing you're a glob of spit. I will crush you. You'll never work in this town again. You're 24 and you're like, oh, I've just pissed off a Titan and there's nothing I can do about this. I ran into Scott one time after that. I was rollerblading through Central Park. I did the only thing I could, which was blade right over to him to show him I was no longer scared. And you know what happened? He was charming as hell because I was no longer someone he had any power over. The power dynamic was no longer there. It was sickening to see him have absolutely no guts outside of that office space. Suddenly, as an adult, I'm looking at it and I'm like, who the fuck does this guy think he is? The 48-year-old me is pissed as fuck about how he treated 22-year-old me. That was 25 years ago, and every single person who's worked there since has had to shut up about their stories. The more I talk about Scott and remember everything, the more I want you to put my middle name in the piece. I want it in the biggest goddamn font you can find. I want him to know who's saying this because I have the ability to say it. I'm saying this for all my friends who can't, who are tied to these NDAs, who are worried about getting sued by Scott. I want, hope once the NDAs are released, every single person shares every horror story that man has ever inflicted on them. And that's why I speak out. That's why all of us critics do. I'm nothing special that's why we do the work we do and 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 it's embodied across a spectrum of activities by a number of people and they're you know these are not cult experts these are not psychology graduates these are not people who should or need to or you know have anything to do with having to understand coercive control and what this craps all about but you know people are living under this who who, who just are trying to get along in life and just trying to survive and it's really, really incumbent on all of us that if we see something now, we need to start speaking up about it. We need to have the guts and the umption and the whatever else to know that there is a ton of support out there for us. The media is certainly more than happy to talk about this stuff now, it seems. Uh, And even, you know, Weinstein's in prison. And uh, of course, we know about Epstein. And uh, Ghislaine, or whatever her name is, and uh, all the rest. This is just the beginning. There is so much work to do, so much work to do to, one, raise awareness, and two, lower tolerance for this kind of abusive nonsense, whether it's in Hollywood or whether it's on Wall Street, whether it's at a school, whether it's at your office, or in your home, for that matter. You, you, No one deserves to be treated the way these people were treated by this monster of a man. No one deserves to be treated the way people are treated by David Miscavige. No one. And uh, I think that if there's any point to me doing this podcast today, it was to try to connect these dots once again and keep putting the messages out there that we can do something about this kind of abuse. and uh, And I hope we do. So that all being said, thank you very much for coming around and listening to me Bible on this week, guys. Uh, I hope that this was somewhat interesting and informative to you. And um, I hope that if this channel is somewhat interesting, informative, and educational to you, that you will consider supporting me through Patreon or through PayPal. Uh, You guys are the ones who keep the lights on and the show going here. And I really want to thank all of you for giving me the opportunity to keep doing this And uh, I hope you will contribute to uh, the cause. All right, guys, see you next week. Bye-bye.